You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've got um, just a few more weeks in Timothy, and then we're going to move to the Old Testament in just a few weeks. And uh, I'm glad you've kind of hung with us through this series. I know uh, it's been challenging. Today is not going to be any different. Uh, the text we've got in front of us today is, is rather difficult. So find your place in 2 Timothy. And, and then what I want you to do is turn over to Matthew 16. I think I've said this to you before, but one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So those uh, chain references in your Bible are very, very important to help us with that. What I want to do is I want to use a story, <clears throat> an interaction between Jesus and Peter to kind of help set the stage for what we're going to look at in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Before we do, I just want to say welcome to all those that are here, all those that are watching online all across the globe, all across our country, and several different countries. We're glad that you're here. And I also want to say that if you if you need to connect with us, it's really easy to do, Jeff at HighPark.Church. Uh, you can check out our Facebook page, connect with us there. But we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have an opportunity to minister to you, even though we're separated by a lot of miles. But there are there are two guests that are watching online that I I'm, know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but uh, my sister, uh, my sister Melissa, helped my mom and dad get internet in their house. So watching this morning from Wilkes County is my mom and dad, and uh, it thrills me to have you online with us this morning. And I'm going to pay a price for what I just did right there. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16. So let me give you the setting for this, uh, for this interaction. Jesus and his disciples are up at Caesarea Philippi. This is one of the most northern places that Jesus would minister. He's got his disciples there, and they're walking along, and uh, he turns to his disciples and, and very uh, straightforwardly asks a question, who do the people say that I am? By that point, uh, there's a lot of crowds that were gathering around Jesus and there was a lot of opinion about who he was. So Jesus asked his disciples, what are you hearing out among the crowds about who I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, Jesus, some say you're Elijah, that you're kind of a reincarnation of, of the prophet Elijah, which, by the way, was predicted in the Old Testament. So people are kind of saying two plus two equals four and, and that you're Elijah. So there's all kinds of opinions floating around about who Jesus is. I can imagine in my mind's eye that at that moment he, he gets the, the disciples to stop walking and he looks them right in the eye and he says, but who do you say that I am? I mean, it's one thing that the crowds are saying something, but, but you've been with me for a while. You've seen some things, you've heard some things. So I'm very interested to know who those who are closest to me, who do you think that I am? G, uh, Peter always being quick to speak, speaks up. It says there in verse 16, he says, Simon replied, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. 
You are the promised one. You are the one that Isaiah talked about. You're the one that Jeremiah talked about. You're the one that Daniel talked about. You're the one that the Old Testament prophets, both major and minor prophets, you're the one that they were talking about. But not only that, he says that you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now that's a whole nother step of identity. So on the one hand, you're the Messiah, but on the other hand, you are the son of the living God. So, so Peter acknowledges in that moment, and the disciples, no doubt, are all shaking their hand in agreement with Peter. Peter was just the first to speak up. That they are agreeing that Jesus is more than just a man. He, he's far more than just a good teacher. He's, he's far more than just a, a reincarnation of Elijah. He, he's far more than just John the Baptist. He is the very Son of God. He is God with flesh on. And Jesus says to Peter, great job, Peter. That's my words, not what you'll find in the gospel. He says, great job, Peter. Now, Peter, your flesh didn't reveal that to you. God revealed that to you. Which means that what, what Peter understands and what the disciples understand the identity of Jesus to be is something that, that God has enabled in them to understand and to learn and to accept. Well done, Peter. Peter, uh, you're going to have a, a place of leadership in my church. Now, of course, they don't understand what that is. They don't even understand what Jesus is going to do as far as laying down his life. He's, he's going to allude to it, but they have no idea what's in the future. You and I do. We have, we have the, the whole story, but they don't at this moment. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, good job. You, you've, you've said the right thing, and you've said it for the right reasons. I would imagine at that moment, the rest of the disciples are like, man, we all missed out on a great opportunity right there. Because remember, among the disciples, they're all fighting among themselves as to who's going to be the greatest. And Peter was the first one to speak up. Now, look at verse 21. From that time, in other words, immediately after this, right, right after this interchange, they're still walking around in Caesarea Philippi, going from place of ministry to place of ministry. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Now, Paul's right there for just a moment. I want you to get this contrast. I want, you to, I want you to feel the weight of this. So on the one hand, the disciples understand that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the Messiah. They all understand that, that Jesus has great power. They've seen him do miracles. They've heard him teach in ways that no one else has ever taught. They see that Jesus is that Messiah, that Jesus is going to be the one who's going to take the throne of David. They knew enough about the Old Testament to know that the Messiah is going to become king. He's going to usher, uh, usher in this new kingdom. He's going to provide power and authority back to the state of Jerusalem. Romans are going to be kicked out. This is all what the disciples are thinking about. But then Jesus blows up that whole concept by looking at his disciples and not just teaching them, but showing them that he has to go to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the religious rulers are going to arrest him. They're going to put him to death. Now, they don't understand all that that means yet. And then Jesus says, and in three days, I'm going to come back to life. It, it always amazes me that when Jesus says this very clearly to his disciples, they always miss the part about the resurrection. Well, in this moment, they are faced with a tremendous conundrum or a, or a paradox. How could, how could the Son of God, Messiah, go to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be put to death, and yet 
have his eyes and heart on set on going there. Well, apparently somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to correct Jesus. Well, guess who steps up? Peter. It says here in verse 22, and Peter took him aside, took him aside. That, that has the idea of force. I, I don't know that if, if Peter grabbed Jesus by the cloak and just kind of pulled him away from the other disciples. Uh, the Greek in behind your English seems to indicate that it was a confrontation. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, get that picture. Peter has just had one of the greatest moments in his life. He, he's just been commended by the Son of God. And Peter has just admitted that he knows that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. So what in the world is Peter doing, pulling the Son of God off to the side and rebuking him? You're, you're rebuking God. You're, you're rebuking the Son of God. Where, Peter, where do you get off doing that? He rebukes him and he says to Jesus, far be it from you, or heaven forbid, or there's no way this is going to happen, that this should ever happen to you. Peter has got the Son of God off to the side, got him by the cloak, looking him in the eye, the man he just proclaimed to be God in the flesh, now he's looking at him and says, there's no way that's going to happen, Jesus. There's, there's no way I'm going to let that happen. As if Peter is in control. As if Peter has the ability to work all this out for his own purposes. I think what's even more powerful here is how Jesus responded to Peter. Now remember, the disciples are looking on. There, there's arguing among them about who's going to be the greatest. Peter has stepped out and had one of his greatest moments, and then right behind it has one of his worst. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Does that surprise anyone? <laughs> I, no doubt it surprised him, and no doubt it surprised the disciples. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. The same guy who just got commended for understanding the identity of Jesus is now getting chastised by Jesus, and, and Jesus is looking at him and saying, you are trying to cause me to trip up and fall. And Satan is behind it. And Satan is using you, Peter. Now look at this last statement, because this is where we want to kind of jump off into 2 Peter chapter 3. Jesus says to Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is it that drove Peter to get in the face of the Son of God to rebuke him? Here's what I think it was. Peter has enjoyed all of the benefits of walking and, and serving and following Jesus. There's been... There's been people being healed. The crowds are gathering. Jesus' popularity is growing at a fast pace. And Peter is enjoying all of the fringe benefits of being part of the 12. And Peter does not want that to come to an end. So, so this all this talk about going to Jerusalem and dying, oh, no, 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 Jesus, we got, we got to get that straightened out because remember, our plan for you is that you rise in power, that you can continue to grow in popularity, that all of us as the 12 that you've chosen, we get to sit at your right and your left in a place of power and authority, and together we are going to build a kingdom, Jesus, and we, Peter, I get to be a leader in that. You see, Peter was in love with the power, the influence, the perks, uh, but Jesus was talking about a death, and Peter 
Peter wasn't on board with that. Go over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, your, things are, your mind is focused on things of men, not things of God. Peter, you're focusing on what you can get and, and how this is going to turn out good for you. And among the disciples, they're all wrestling and fighting and arguing about who's going to be the greatest. James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, they're, they're all vying for, for position. And I would imagine when Jesus rebukes Peter, all the rest of the soppers are going, yes. That means Peter's out of the way. It's up to us now, guys. We've got to get our foot in the door. We've got we to move up this ladder. We've we, we got we to get the perks here. Peter, Peter's out there. We've got to get out there. Well, Paul has something to say about that. And Paul frames it within the confines of the latter days. Paul writing to Timothy, saying to Timothy, Timothy, be careful. Be careful that your culture doesn't influence you. Be careful with these false teachers. Make sure you stand upon the word. Make sure you rightly divide it. Because what those false teachers are trying to do in your midst is spread false teaching. And it will spread in your church like a cancer. Or as Paul said, gangrene. Timothy, make sure you understand where you are in the culture. Make sure you understand what's going on around you. Timothy, make sure you understand that, that although you're trying to reach people and you're trying to share the gospel and see people's lives change, make sure you understand the culture that you're in is going to get worse and worse and worse. These false teachers were misleading people intentionally. They were, as we saw last week, stealing their faith, undermining the truth, and as such was causing all kinds of division and arguing about things that did not matter. The culture that Timothy is in is an Ephesian culture that is completely given over to lust, completely given over to self-absorption. And, and here's Timothy trying to navigate not only what's going on in the culture and trying to reach people, but he's trying to navigate what's going on in his church. But there's no way Timothy's going to be able to do this unless he understands where he is and where the culture is. So what does Jesus mean, or what does Paul mean? In chapter 3, verse 1, look at this. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, what is Paul talking about? Is he, is he talking about some period of time that is still off in the future, right before Jesus returns? Well, if that's what Paul means, then it makes no sense that he would write this to Timothy. If it's something still off in our future, then why would he tell Timothy, Timothy, pay attention to these things going on in culture, because it's going to have an impact on your church. No, the latter days, is. this is what it means when we see the latter days. Jesus lives, ministers, dies on a cross, buried in an empty tomb, resurrected the third day. Then after 50 days of ministering to his disciples, teaching his disciples, he ascends back to the Father publicly. And there were people all gathered around on that day when Jesus was saying his final words. And he would say, go be my witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, this is in Acts 1.8. And then gravity lets go of Jesus, and Jesus begins to ascend up into the clouds. What Paul is talking about is the time period between when Jesus went back to the Father and the time before he comes back. So there is a, a window of time here. The time in which Jesus went to heaven to be with God, right hand of the Father, begins the latter days. And the latter days does not end until Jesus returns, which is yet in our future. So here's what you've got to understand. All that we're going to look at, all these descriptives in chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 9, are not only talking about the Ephesian culture, the day in which Timothy served and ministered, but it speaks to ours as well. And what Paul is going to tell Timothy here is in these latter days, those days are going to be marked by a growing emphasis on self. Look at what he says. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, verse 1, there will come times of difficulty. You see that word difficulty? The Greek word behind your English word difficulty is only used twice in the New Testament, once here and once in Matthew 8. And in Matthew 8, Jesus gets off of a, of a boat, and he's in this town called Gadara. And in Gadara, there is two demon-possessed men. And as the townspeople describe to Jesus about these two demon-possessed men, they use the word fierce in that, in, in that particular verse. That's the same word that we have right here in 2 Timothy 3. So look at it this way. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of fierceness, savageness. Days where people are acting like savages. They're acting with fierce anger and wrath. They're, they're focused on something. He's going to tell us what they're focused on. Verse 2. For people will be lovers of self. Now, I could go through this text, and there's about 18 or 19 terms here that Paul uses to describe not only Ephesus, but to describe the entire time frame between Jesus' ascension and his return, the time in which we live. But I'm going to go focus on three particular phrases because I think all, all of these 18 phrases fit under this category or these categories. The first thing I want you to notice is love of self. That, that in our world and in our culture, what comes first is me. It is, it is, a, it is a me culture that says, do only what's best for you. Do only what helps you you know, progress or get stronger or get more power or more authority. There's another word that we use for this. It's called narcissism. Now, narcissism is rooted in Greek mythology. And there was this myth of a, of a, of a gentleman by the name of Narcissus. Or I think it's Narcissus, actually. And he was so beautiful. He, he was so handsome. He, he just couldn't imagine anybody looking any better than him. And one day, he finds his way to this pool of water, and he looks into the pool of water, and he sees his reflection for the first time. And he is so beautiful that he falls in love with himself. Now, there's a couple of different stories on this. One story says that he stayed at the pool the rest of his life and died there. Another story says that he committed suicide because he realized that there was no way that that love could ever be returned to him. And then there's another story in Greek mythology that says that one of the, the false gods, the myth gods, killed him off. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, our idea of narcissism comes from the idea that we love ourselves so much that there couldn't possibly be anything in the world greater than us. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, one of the ways to understand these latter days is that people will be lovers of them self, consumed with self-love. And this breaks down the greatest commandment that Jesus taught us. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, you can hang all of the commandments on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love of self is, is, is undermining the great commandment by which we find joy and peace and real meaning in our life. If we spend our entire life just loving us, 
watching out for our own selves, watching out for ours and, and our own agendas, if all we ever do is consume our entire lifespan on us, then you have missed out on what real joy and peace is really about. It's interesting that the world says to you and to us and to me, just live for you. And that's where you'll find contentment. Just do what makes you feel good. You you involve yourself in in this affair. Involve yourself in this pursuit. Uh, Begin to take this substance, and it'll make you feel even better about you. Paul says that these people, you can find them. I think all of these terms describe lovers of self. He says, They're proud and arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal. That word has the idea of not having natural affection, which means that maybe a parent towards a child, there's no love because the parent is so self-consumed with themselves. No doubt you know families like that. You you know families where there are kids that are pretty well raising themselves because the parents are so consumed with whatever. They love themselves even more than they love their own children. Paul says that is a characteristic of the last days. It's a characteristic of Ephesus, and it's a characteristic of Lumberton. Self-love. He says here, look at this. He says that they are swollen with conceit, puffed up, arrogant. It's not as though they're trying to hide their self-love. No, it's, it's out for everyone to see. And then they're not ashamed of it. There was a time where you could provide a false humility to cover up for your self-absorption. There was a time where you could put forward a, a good face and say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm humble. And, of course, the very moment we say we're humble is probably indicating we're not But there was a time where it was not a good thing to be self-absorbed, so you would hide it. Not anymore. People are proud of their self-absorption. And not only that, but they're asking us to compromise our own convictions to make sure they feel good about themselves. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, we got a problem, and that problem's right outside your church door. As a matter of fact, we'll find out in a minute, it's a lot closer than that. But there's a second thing that that Paul mentions here that I want to highlight. Lovers of self, verse 2, and look at this, lovers of money. Now, now Paul had already talked to Timothy about the love of money. It is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money in 1 Timothy. Here he brings it up again. He says, in these latter days, there are going to be people who love their possessions even more than they love human life. That there will be people who will protect their wealth and protect their stuff and protect their toys more than they would even protect human life. That they love their possessions. And they will tell you, they will tell you, no, 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 those are my possessions. I have control of them. And when it's exactly the opposite, your possessions possess you. They control you. They own you. That's the whole point. He says that there will be people who love their stuff. And this, of course, is materialism. We have narcissism, love of self, and flowing out of love of self certainly is materialism. Because if I love myself, then I need to get more and more and more stuff, more and more wealth, more and more toys to justify loving me. 
How do we know this is uh, out of control? How do we know that materialism is one of the gods, little g gods, false gods, that our country is now worshiping? Can I direct your attention to trillions and trillions and trillions of debt? Financially, as a country, we are bankrupt tenfold over. And yet, we're still writing checks. It's because we love money. And Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, the root of evil is that love of possessions, materialism. And then he points our attention to one other love. Now, I understand the love of money also includes recklessness, treacherous conceit. It includes arrogance, abusiveness, disobedience. All, all the things that he's listing out here, all of these terms, also fits in with those who love money and possessions. But look at verse 4. He brings us to another love. He says, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. And here it is, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So we have the love of self, narcissism. We have, the, we have the love of possessions, which is materialism. And then he brings us to another ism. It's called hedonism, the love of pleasure. This has so taken root in our culture that it's almost indistinguishable from the others. Now, of course, hedonism is an outlier of self-love, right? That, that, that pleasure, obviously, the love of pleasure fits into love of self. But we live in a culture right now where the single greatest pursuit is to have pleasure and entertainment. We are entertaining ourselves to death. And, and no matter how far we go and no matter what entertainment we find, we are always looking for the next level and the next level and the next level of entertainment. And listen, we're, real, we're willing to go in debt. We're willing to go so far in debt for more pleasure. We will charge all of our credit cards to the max. We'll do whatever we've got to do to get that next step of pleasure. Paul said that, that Ephesus, Ephesus was that culture. And no doubt our culture fits in. We have a city called Las Vegas that markets itself for self-love. And materialism, and yes, hedonism. I've never been. I do hear it's a beautiful city. I do hear that you know, the lights and everything, and I've seen it, you know, YouTube, on TV, but I've never been. But I've also heard the other side of it, that as soon as you walk into town, I've even heard some folks say as soon as you get off the airplane, there are people handing you cards for prostitution. That Las Vegas has made itself very, very popular across the world for the pursuit of pleasure by which we are willing to legalize sinful activity to abuse women, to take women and women who, who God has created in His image and lower them down as something to be purchased and bargained for. And this city has made that their mission to come to Las Vegas so that you can have all of your pleasure, everything that you want, everything that feeds your flesh, you come on to Las Vegas and you can engage. Now, I know that you, some of you have been and I know that you've stayed away from that. I got that. I understand that. But you cannot make any mistake about this, that that city and many others across the world market themselves 
for hedonism, for the desires to fulfill in your flesh, to pay all the money, to get fulfillment from pleasure. And people will go in the deep, deep debt to pursue pleasure. So we have narcissism, love of self. We have materialism, the love of money. We have hedonism, the love of pleasure. And you've got to see that that is the big three. Not only in Ephesus, but in Lumberton. The interactions you have with people about the gospel, when, when they come to that place where they've, they've heard the gospel and, and maybe they're getting to that place where they're wrestling, you know what they're wrestling with? You know what you wrestled with? What I wrestled with? When we came to that place where we were going to put our faith in Jesus, the thing that we wrestled with is the understanding that following Jesus means that I've got to leave some things behind. Matter of fact, I've got to leave that all behind. And there were some things that I liked. There were some things that I wanted to engage. There were things that I wanted to do for me. But in that moment, Jesus being king, Jesus being Lord, Jesus being the one who died in my place, Jesus resurrecting from the grave, there come that moment where I had to lay down every claim to my life, every claim to self-absorption, every claim to possessions, every claim to pleasure, because I couldn't bring that with me and follow Jesus. That's what you're wrestling with. Some of you have not put your faith in Jesus. You will not put your faith in him because you know it's going to cost you something. Well, guess what? Every person in this building and everyone watching online that's put their faith in Jesus has been, had to have, what was the cost? Everything. And you know what? It was worth it. It was worth it. Every bit of everything I had to give up to follow Jesus was worth it and I would do it a thousand times over. Because there was nothing in this world, possessions, self-absorption, pleasure, that can measure up to what it means to have a changed life in Christ. So while you're wrestling, remember this. There's only one thing that's going to bring you out of this mess. While you're wrestling, while you're, while you're trying to contemplate, should I, should I hold on to my alcohol? Should I hold on to, to my pornography? Should I hold on to my pleasures? Or should I follow Jesus? Let me tell you something. A lifelong pursuit of yourself is going to lead to emptiness like you can never possibly imagine. I've sat in many of a hospital room where the person who's dying spent their whole life consumed with themselves. Let me tell you what that's like. There's not a lot of family around. If they are, they're not really concerned about what's going on in that room because they all know that this person was a brute. They were angry. They walked over people because it was all about them. They were angry. They, they, were, they were swollen with conceit. They were lovers of themselves. They, they might have been married. They might have had a family, but those kids will tell you, those grandkids will tell you, that wife or that husband will tell you, that person in that room spent their entire life spending everything on themselves. And that person in the bed knows it. And now they're overwhelmed with regret. And they're looking at me saying, how can I go back? How can, how can I fix this? I have to look at them and say, there's only one way. And, and unless the Holy Spirit is drawing you in this moment, unless the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation, there is no salvation. But they are overwhelmed with regret. They're overwhelmed with self-hatred. All of that self-love has now turned into self-hatred because in that moment, they know, they know 
that their life has been a complete and utter waste. The people out in the hallway don't really care. The spouse doesn't really care. And on the day of the funeral, I'm standing in front of a group of people who are not really mourning. You know why? It's because there was never any love between this person and his own family. I can name names. I can name funerals. I can, listen, I've been there, done that. And I'm here to tell you, lost person, that that pursuit of yourself, it leads somewhere. It leads to brokenness. It leads to emptiness. It leads to loneliness. It leads to regret. And here's where it ultimately leads. It leads to being eternally separated from God. That's where it leads. So why your culture is telling you to do all of that? Of course they are, because that's what they're doing. But Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, these people who love themselves and love possessions and love pleasure, there's only one answer for them. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But folks, let me show you the thing that in this text really blows my mind. So is Paul talking about those people out there? Yes, he is. But he's also talking about people inside the church. Look at this. He says, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, now why did Paul throw that in there? Because those false teachers that, that we talked about last week who were spreading a false teaching about the resurrection, it's having an effect. Paul said it would spread like gangrene. He said it would spread like a cancer. And so what you have in these false teachers and the ones who are following these false teachers is you have people who are in love with themselves, in love with possessions, in love with pleasure, but they're wrapping themselves up in religiosity. That's scary, folks. So on the one hand, they love themselves. On the one hand, they love pleasure. On the one hand, they're no different than the people living in Ephesus. But on the other hand, they're in the church and they know the songs. They know the verses. They might even be able to teach a little bit. Paul says they have an appearance, a facade of godliness, but there's no power in their life at all. They know the words. They know the songs. And listen, they, they love the idea of Jesus. They love the idea of a Jesus who loves people. They love the idea of a Jesus who, who goes to the broken and the poor. They, they love a social-minded Jesus. They, they love a Jesus who, who's hanging out with people. They, they love an idea of a Jesus who's going to provide blessings and golden streets, pearly gates, and a hereafter. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that Jesus. But now, the Jesus who says he's going to a cross, mm, a bloody guy hanging on a cross, and no, that's too graphic. I, I, I'm not into that Jesus. Or the Jesus who says that if you commit adultery, adultery can happen in the mind, the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, no, I don't, I don't want any of the Sermon on the Mount. That's radical stuff. I'd rather have the, the little Jesus I can keep in a box, the little Jesus who's my best friend, the little Jesus who I can control. Because remember, it's not about him, it's about me. But the Jesus who hangs on a cross, the Jesus who is beaten to death, the Jesus who is bleeding all over his body, not because he did something wrong, but because we did. No, I don't, I don't want to hear about the fall. I don't want to hear that we're all born into sin. That bothers me. It upsets me. It doesn't, doesn't give me a lot of self-love. Well, yeah, that's the point. You either get the whole Jesus or no Jesus at all. You get the Jesus who, yes, loved the broken. 
You get the Jesus who, who showed grace to people that the rest of the world had outcast. But you can't have that Jesus without having the one who died bludgeoned on a cross. The Jesus who was placed in a borrowed tomb. And yes, the Jesus who resurrected the third day. He's a whole total package. You can't get to pick what you like and what you don't like. It's either all or nothing. And it's that Jesus that confronts your self-absorption. It's that Jesus that deals with your hedonism. It's that Jesus that deals with your materialism. You see, the Jesus you put in a box, the Jesus that you can hold over here off to the side, he really doesn't offer anything other than puffing you up a little bit more, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That was the Jesus that Peter wanted to follow. These people are trying to have it both ways. An appearance of godliness, but no power. A, a Jesus that loves, but not a Jesus who dies. And even further, over in Matthew 16, if you read a little further where we were, Right after he, he deals with Peter, and, I, and again, I would imagine that among the disciples, they're arguing now about, okay, P Peter's kind of been knocked off the front spot. How can we kind of slide into that position? Jesus says to the rest of the disciples, including Peter, he says, unless you take up a cross and follow me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take up a cross. The way to be exalted is to humble yourself. To become first in the kingdom of God is to become last. Does that sound, well, crazy? When Jesus told his disciples that they must take up a cross, they knew exactly what that meant. Now, they didn't understand everything that was going to happen in Jerusalem years later when Jesus goes there. He's going to enlighten them as they continue to minister. But at this point, the only imagery they had of a cross is when they would go from Roman town to Roman town and there would be crosses on the side of the road of criminals whose bodies were still hanging up there, who, who, were, who were decomposing. And you had to walk by these, these bodies hanging on crosses as a testimony of the government of Rome that you don't raise an insurrection against Caesar. You don't break the laws of Rome. If you do, you'll meet the same end. So then Jesus says to his disciples, you're not worthy of me. You're not following me unless you take up a cross. Can you imagine what they thought? What could he possibly mean? What he means is that following Jesus is not about you. It's about him. And that there's a cross for us to bear, and through the bearing of that cross, it deals with our self-absorption, hedonistic, materialistic, narcissistic attitudes that we all wrestle with and struggle with. Paul warns Timothy of, of the possibility of a church becoming a counterfeit. He says, they have appearance of godliness, but they're divine its power. He says, avoid such people. Not only were these false teachers teaching things that were incorrect, but they also had an outreach program. Look at verse 6. For among them, who are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Now, he's not saying that all women are weak-minded. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that the women in Ephesus, that these false teachers are having sway over, were certainly weak-minded. It's because they were following the culture of Ephesus. They were engaged in all kinds of ungodliness. And when these false teachers roll in there with their false gospel, they're all on board. So they had an outreach program. Look at verse 7. Always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, ever gaining more knowledge, but ignorant of the gospel, offering more and more things to believe, yet no power connected to it. 
So, so when you take a Jesus, and our culture's trying to do this, and I want you to be on the lookout for it, our culture's trying to, to take Jesus, put him in a little box, say that Christianity is something that was never meant to be scripturally, and then what they're doing is they're saying, okay, now that we've got Jesus in this little box over here where he just loves people, and certainly he did, that, that Jesus is some kind of a, a social minister. So now what we're going to do is we're going to feed some people. We're going to get some clothes out. We're going we're to start all kinds of social programs because that's what Jesus is about. Here's what Jesus was about. Absolutely, give a cold drink of water to someone in need. Absolutely, give them a bag of food. Absolutely, minister and meet needs. But here's the thing you got to keep in mind. There's one need greater than their food and their clothes and their shelter and water. The need is, is that their heart is broken. They are born into sin. They, they, they are loving themselves. They are completely engrossed with themselves. And, and listen, a, a Jesus in a box over here who's all about social programs cannot deliver that person out of that kind of brokenness. No, it's a bloody Jesus hanging on a cross and an empty tomb that delivers people out of brutality and, 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 and self-conceit and, and, and abusiveness and disobedience and ungratefulness and unholiness. Listen, you've got no social program that can deliver people out of that. You can write, the government can write all the checks they want to write. They can give out all the food they want to give out. They can have all the public housing they want to give. But it is never, ever going to change the heart of the individual who's broken by sin. Period. It's not going to happen. If you're broken, if, if, if you are consumed with yourself, there is only one pathway out of that brokenness, and it is a bloody cross, an empty tomb, a Jesus who died in your place, putting faith in him. That's it. You can claw, and you can try, and you can try to be a good person, and you can try to focus on, you can even go on a mission trip where you're serving other people. But still, even then, we make it about us. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, be careful because your church could get turned into just another social program that has no gospel and no power. It can have a form of godliness, but no power. It can gain in knowledge, but never come to the truth. It can go through the motions of religiosity, but never lead people to a cross where their lives can be changed from the inside out. Folks, that ought to make the hair stand up on the back of our neck. Jesus himself said, what does a man gain? If he gains the whole world. You get, out, you get all of your dreams met, all of your pleasures fulfilled, all of the money in the bank, all of the possessions. You get it all. You're on the top of the heap. You've worked hard and you've got there. What does a man gain if he gains all of that and then loses his own soul? few things I want you to remember about what Paul is saying to Timothy. First of all, we've got to be careful. We've got to be aware. We've got to be aware of this me culture that is creeping in to every facet of our life. I mean, it's everywhere, folks. And here's the message they're preaching. Be popular. Be great. Be wealthy. Be empowered. Be powerful. Be successful. If it makes you happy, then you do it. You don't have to worry about anybody else. You certainly don't have to worry about a God somewhere. If it's good for you, then you do it. And you don't have to justify it. As a matter of fact, what you need to do is make everyone around you who's saying that it's not right to give up their convictions and applaud whatever you're involved in. 
the me culture's creeping in. Several years ago, when I was an associate pastor, I thought that God was calling me to plant a church. So I was working towards that end. And I, I, I wrote up this church plant model, and I keep it on my computer just as a check for my pride and my arrogance. But I wrote this whole thing up. And man, it was all about, you know, bands and smoke machines and everything else. And the back of, this is back in about 07, where all that stuff was reaching its peak and its frenzy. And that seeker-friendly movement that churches were kind of getting on board with. And man, I, I wanted to get involved with that. So what I did is I, I come up with this whole church plan idea. And I was ready. Man, I was ready to go. My wife was not so much, which should have told me something. She's far more spiritual than I am. So I had a friend who was in the ministry. He's, he passed away a few years ago. He's in heaven now, Dr. Chris Mills, great man of God. I went to him because we were good friends, and I said, hey, man, I want you to, want you to read my church plan idea. And I want, Really what I was looking for is that maybe his church would financially support us to launch this new church. So I emailed the whole thing to him, and uh, then we set up a time to meet, and I walked into his office, and he had it printed out. And I sat down, and I'm just, I'm just boiling over with excitement about this, this new idea. And uh, I said, Chris, what do you think? And he's, he's acting a little weird because he's not as excited as I hoped he would be. And uh, I said, Chris, what do you think? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, how much, how much time have you spent praying about this? Oh, I've, I've prayed about it. Oh, yeah, I've, I've prayed about it. He said, no, no, no. How long have you been away with God alone, fasting on your face before God, making sure that this is what God wants. Well, I tried to answer the question very, well, spiritually. <laughs> Didn't come across very well because I hadn't done that. Oh, yeah, I had prayed about it. But here's what my prayer was. God, I'm planting this church. Are you okay with that? Sure you are. Let's move. Let's get it done. Chris says, let me tell you what I think. He said, can I, can I tell you how I feel? I said, absolutely. I'm thinking this is where he's going to take a check out and sign a check. He's going to sign up to support. He says, let me tell you what I see in this document. He said, what I see in this document is Jeff Blackburn. I don't see God. He said, you are completely and utterly absorbed with yourself. He said, and if you think for a moment that God is going to take this mess and bless it, you can forget it. Just take a knife out and stick it right through my heart. I was a mixture of mad, sad, wanting to slam and break something. How dare this man who thinks he knows what's right for me? How, how does he know? He doesn't know. And that's, that's what I asked him for. But what I was asking for is for him to validate my own self-absorption. Here's the reality, folks. This stuff can creep in, and it crept into my life. And when I slumped out of that office, when I crawled out of that office, God met me in my car, and he broke me into a million pieces right there in my car and showed me just how arrogant and prideful and self-absorbed I was and how I had taken this and wrapped it in religiosity. Oh, yeah, it's creeping in, folks. The me culture, it's everywhere. You may already be wrestling with it. Second thing you got to make sure you understand is that misplaced love, and that's what we're really talking about here, misplaced love. You know, we've all been created to love, to give love, and to receive love. We were created with that. But we can misplace that love. And we can turn that love towards ourselves, towards power, towards money, towards pleasure. 
And you got to understand something, that all of that misplaced love is satanic in nature. I know that's a hard term, but stick with me for just a moment. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What do we see in the Garden of Eden? Serpent, Adam and Eve. We see Adam and Eve misplacing love. Uh, they had a love relationship with the Creator where they would walk and talk with Him. Satan comes along and says, did, did God say you couldn't eat from that tree over there? And they're like, well, you know, that's a good point. And by the way, God's trying to keep something from you. But now God, God loved that Adam and Eve. God loved the pinnacle of His creation. They knew that love. But in that moment... They turned that love away from God and they turned it to themselves. And they said, we see the fruit. The fruit looks good and we're going to eat it. They only have one command and they broke it. In that moment, you know what they chose? They chose themselves ahead of God. You know what Peter was doing? Peter was choosing himself ahead of the Son of God and the plan and the will that God had for his son. In that moment, Peter was saying, Jesus, listen to me. I know what's best. And what was best for Peter? Power, authority, influence, a spot in the kingdom where people looked up to him. Peter was told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You see, that desire or that misplaced love flows right out of darkness. It's exactly what Satan wants for you. He wants that for the lost person. He also wants that for the Christian. Finally, the self-empowerment, self-love, self-absorption leaves no space for Great Commission work. None. You know why? Because when it comes down to you talking about a Jesus on a cross who died for your sins and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you have been changed by that Jesus, that bloody Jesus hanging on the cross, that bloody Jesus that had some really hard things to say, that bloody Jesus who said to all who would follow him, take up a cross and follow me. When it comes down to, to, to talking about that Jesus to your friends and your family so that they may know the truth, so that they may know how to find life, we will choose not to talk about that because we don't want people looking at us like that. The reason we're not bringing the gospel up is because we love ourselves too much. We don't want to offend anyone. And my goodness, is it easy to offend. You just bring up the name of Jesus and see what happens in the room. I'm not talking about the little Jesus in a box. I'm talking about the authentic, historical Jesus on a cross. You bring that Jesus up and you see what happens. But are we willing in that moment to give up self-love, self-centeredness to talk about the Jesus that has changed our life? And by the way, that Jesus is the only one that's going to bring people out of this mess. If Jesus has changed your life and you love him, then I would imagine that the historical Jesus would come up in our conversations from time to time. I would imagine that you're wrestling with love of self. I'm just going to keep quiet. Don't want to stir things up. I'll talk about Jesus when I get to church. You're wrestling with him and yourself and your love for self and your materialism and your pleasure. Because you see, taking up a cross is going to cost you everything. Taking up a cross brings shame and reproach into your life. But that's what Jesus has called us to. 
and there is no help found anywhere else than in Jesus Christ, the one who hung on the cross for us and resurrected the third day. So in the time to quit being so focused on ourselves and to finally take up that cross and follow him. Lord, we love you. The culture, Father, is more than happy to to lead us to love ourselves more than we love you. And our culture is completely fine with us observing religious um, observations and participating in religion and wrapping up our self-absorption in, in religiosity and, and Jesus talk. Father, Satan is not threatened by that at all. But what he is threatened of is threatened by is one who surrenders their entire life to Jesus Christ the righteous. Satan is threatened when a person takes up the cross and follows. The kingdom of darkness shudders when someone looks beyond themselves in true sacrificial love and serves rather than trying to get. Father, I believe there are people in this room and watching online who are still wrestling with their own self-absorption, pride, arrogance, conceit, puffed up. And, and Father, they're, conf they're confronted with the reality that there's no hope for them apart from Jesus, but that Jesus calls them to lay everything down. So, Father, the wrestling struggle, all of us who've come to your faith and you know what that's like. But, Father, I pray that they would see, look far ahead into their life and see a life of loneliness, brokenness, that if they continue on the path they're on, eventually it will lead to a wide path that leads to destruction, separated from you forever. Is it really that important? Is it really that important to serve themselves? Father, for the believers in this building, disciples in this building, we wrestle every day with dying to self so that we can live for others. Father, I pray that if we're missing the mark on that, that during this time of response, they would not be afraid. Step out, respond, pray here, pray where they are. If there's someone lost here, Father, today is the day they need to move right now, today, this day, right now. Time is ticking by. We have no time to waste on ourselves. Father, have your will, your way in this moment. And make sure that everyone knows, Father, that there's freedom in this place to respond. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 